following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We started a new series last week. It's called Origins, and it has sent many of you back to the beginning of your Bibles to uh, read again these, these old stories, which are the first three chapters of our Bible. So we're working our way through the very first three chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, just those three chapters. And believe me, there's enough in those to keep us going for quite some time. So if you weren't here last week, we're only one week into the series. If you weren't here last week, uh, I'd encourage you to have a listen online to the message because uh, we just talked about a, a big picture view, particularly of Genesis 1, that very first chapter in the Bible, and kind of got our bearings with that and what, what kind of text this is. We talked about how Genesis 1 is an ancient cosmology. Anyone remember that? An ancient cosmology. And so as such, it is concerned with these questions of who created the heavens and the earth and why they created the heavens and the earth. Those are the two important questions, not a whole lot of other questions that we might want to know, which might be interesting and we might touch on, but why these texts were written was to answer the questions, who created? And the answer to that comes in the very first verse of the Bible, God. And why did he create? And that question, why, is going to become really important today. Really important. When we go through the passage we're going to look at this morning, we need to be keeping that question, why did God create this stuff? Why did he do this? Why did he do that? We need to have that question at the forefront as we hit this text today. So hopefully um, that will start to fit into place and make some more sense for you. And we looked last week, if you remember, at the very first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And we talked about how that verse is a summary statement of the whole first chapter of Genesis. So it's not the first step in the process as such. It's the summary. It's like the big heading over the whole creation story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then, verse 2, the story itself begins. It's like the curtain opens, story begins. That's what we're going to get stuck into this morning, okay? So if you've got a Bible, pull it out. If you've got it on your device, uh, open it up. Uh, very first chapter, shouldn't be too hard to find, just to the right of the contents page. Genesis chapter 1. And uh, we're just going to dive straight into it this morning because what I want to do today is cover the first three days of creation, okay? So that's quite a bit to get through, first three days. We'll do the next three days next week, but the first three days of creation. So we've got to get through three days in about 30 minutes, all right? Even longer if you're an old earth person, right? Uh, some of you got that one. Okay, so uh, verse 2 is where we're going to start. No funny stories to start with this morning. Sorry, we're just going to get straight down to business, right? School holidays are over. We're getting down to work. We good? Okay, Bible's open. Let's go. Genesis 1, verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So this is, if we just stop there for a moment, this is quite an ominous sounding verse, isn't it? We, we typically, I think, with the creation story, we want to go straight to day one. You know, we want to get straight to let there be light. That's where the good stuff starts, right? That's kind of where we think the story starts. But before you get to that, you've got this. This eerie, sinister, gloomy, ominous sounding scene here where you've got this deep, dark, silent, watery abyss. 
You've got the earth there already existing. We don't know how long that's existed for. God's already created the earth, but it's formless and it's empty and it's dark and it's deep and it's, it's foreboding. And it sort of raises the question, why? why? Why didn't God just jump straight to day one and, and, and create stuff? Why this? Why verse two? Have a look at those words, formless and empty in verse two. The Hebrew phrase behind those words is the phrase, tohu wabohu. Everybody say tohu wabohu. Tohu wabohu. That is an awesome phrase. Use it with family and friends. It's ama- it sounds like something you'd order at a dodgy restaurant or something, doesn't it? Have a bowl of tohu wabohu. Uh, but that's, it's this rhyming phrase. It doesn't rhyme in English, but it rhymes in Hebrew. A formless and void tohu wabohu. Uh, so it can be translated with these words like formless and empty or void. Some of your translations might say void. Uh, But in fact, the words have a little bit more force than that. Uh, They're paired up together in Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, those two words, tohu and bohu, they appear together again. And there they are usually translated as chaos and desolation. So a bit more force, a bit more strength to the words there, chaos, not just formless and void, but chaotic and desolate. It's kind of the scene of like a desert wasteland, just an arid desert with no life. Nothing's growing, nothing's flourishing, nothing's thriving, nothing's moving, nothing's living, nothing's breathing. It's just lifeless. It's just empty. It's arid. It's barren. Except this is not a desert. This is a watery deep. This is a watery abyss. It's tohu wabohu. Now, why did God create tohu wabohu? Why did God create this? Why did God create chaos? That's an interesting question. One of the things we've got to understand here is there's no hint in verse 2 of the presence of evil. Okay, God has not created something here that is bad. This is not, it's not sinful. It's not ungodly or unholy. That, it's not chaos in the sense that we think of the word chaos as some kind of criminal or sinful kind of behavior. All it means is that things are not yet ordered. If you can imagine in the beginning, it's kind of like everything was all jumbled together. It's like all the elements of creation were just kind of all thrown together and they're all sort of tangled up in this big jumbled mess, in a sense. Earth and heaven, uh, sea and sky, land and sea, it was all just just jumbled together in in this big primordial soup. And that's the way God intended it. Not because it was bad, not because it was evil, but because this is going to be the story of God bringing order out of chaos. It's not primarily the story of God just making stuff. It's the story of God bringing order, bringing function, bringing purpose, assigning role, giving value, giving identity out of this kind of disordered and jumbled mess. And so we start with tohu wabohu. And the Spirit of God is hovering over the tohu wabohu. The word spirit is the word ruach. And it simply means breath or wind. The breath of God. And we know this is the Holy Spirit. From from the rest of Scripture, we know this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God just hovering. Same kind of word that's used of of a mother bird brooding over her young. Just hovering there. Just waiting. And you've got to feel in this verse the sense of anticipation, don't you? Can you feel that with the tohu wabohu? That the Spirit of God is there and He's hovering. He's hovering over the waters. And wherever the Spirit of God is there hovering, you know something's about to happen. 
you know, something's about significant is about to take place. There's the sense that the potential is there. The Spirit of God is there just waiting, waiting to get the word, waiting to get the green light to release his power into the world. But for now, he's just hovering, just waiting over the tohu wabohu. And then God says, verse 2, verse 3 rather, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Here is day one. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, here's a question for you. What did God create on day one? <laughs> Most people would say that what God created on day one was light because he separated the light from the darkness. And that's true, but it's not true enough. It's not quite the point. Because here's a follow-up question. Why did God call the light day? There's a Hebrew word for light, and there's a Hebrew word for day. So when God created light, why didn't he just call the light light and the darkness darkness? But instead, he's called the light day, and he's called the darkness night. See, the answer, if you think about it, is quite logical. That what God has created on day one is not simply light. It is a period of light called day, right? Simple enough? So it's not that God has simply created a physical property called light out of darkness. He's done that, but that's not the point. The point is that God has set up a period of light called day. And then following this period of light called day, there is a period of darkness called you're getting it, yes. And then after the period of darkness called night, there's another period of light called, whoa, you're right onto it. Day and night and day and night. And so evening passes and morning comes, and that's the first day. God has created these days. And once you have that understanding in place, then it becomes clear what God has really done on day one. On day one, God has not so much created light. He's done something even more significant. What's God created on day one? Time. On day one, God creates time. He sets up these alternating cycles of day and night and day and night. He sets in place a system which is the basis of time, and that's going to become the fundamental thing that lets the rest of creation unfold because you can't have much of the rest of creation without time. So God creates time. That's why at the end of that passage you have evening passes. And morning then comes, the first day, because that's what God has done. He's created time so that days can happen. You only get to that if you ask the question, why? Do you see why that question is so important? Because if you just ask what, and you just stay with what did God create on day one, then you only get as far as God created light and, or separated the light from the darkness. But if you push through and you ask, well, why? Why did God separate the light from the darkness? Then the answer becomes clear. To create time. That is the purpose for which God separated the light and the darkness. If you don't believe me, if you think I'm just making stuff up, let me read you a quote from a respected Old Testament scholar, John Walton. He says this. We conclude then that day one does not concern itself with the creation of the physicist's light. That is, light as a physical entity with physical properties. Day one concerns something much more significant, something much more elemental to the functioning of the cosmos and to our experience of the cosmos. On day one, God created time. 
God is putting in place the fundamental building blocks that are going to sustain life, human life, animal life. And the first of those is to create the basis of a system of time, day and night, day and night. On day one, God creates time. Okay, let's keep going. Day two, verse six. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. Now, to understand what God's created on day two, we need to know a little bit more about this vault that God's created. Some of your translations might say a firmament or a vault is in the NIV. Uh, the Hebrew word is rakia. And uh, it's simply, it's often translated sky. That's a fair translation. But the key thing to remember here is when it comes to thinking about the sky or the atmosphere, for ancient people, Israelites and everybody else, everybody believed that the sky was solid. This is just across the board. In fact, people didn't believe the sky was, was non-solid until about 500 years ago, amazingly. But in these ancient times, Jewish as well as other cultures, everybody believed the sky was this big dome. It was a big solid dome, like this inverted bowl that was over our heads. It was rock solid, this big brass plate up in the sky that just sat there. And they believed that above the rakia, above the dome, there was a layer of water. There was an ocean. So when they looked up in the sky and they saw blue, that's what they thought they were looking at. They thought they were looking at an ocean up there. And the rakia, this dome, they thought, held back the waters. It held up the waters so the ocean up there didn't collapse on the ocean down here. The rakia separated the waters above from the waters below, the ocean. That's where you get that reference in this verse, to the waters above and the waters below. It was all sort of separated, they believed, by this rakia. Now, we know today that that kind of thinking is completely outdated. We know the sky is not uh, solid, it's vaporous. But they didn't know that. And it's interesting, I think, that God doesn't feel the need to update that. God doesn't feel the need to provide this sort of accurate scientific uh, details in the text. And it tells you again, I think God's intention here is not to teach us science. It's to reveal himself. It's to reveal who he is. And it's to reveal his purposes for creating the world. So he expresses this truth within the terms of ancient cosmology, and that's fine. And we can all be okay with that. The fact they thought the rakia is solid is absolutely fine. That's the sense in which this text is written, and that's not the ultimate point of the, of, of the story. So think about the rakia again. The function of the rakia, see, it was believed that you have these oceans above the, above the dome, and then every so often, the gates of the rakia would open, and some of the water that was up there would come down to earth, and that provides the rain. Right? That's the rain, when the waters come down. Sometimes it's the gates of heaven. Sometimes it's described that way. The gates of heaven open, and the waters come down, and that provides rain on the earth. It was also believed that that's where the snow came down, and the hail, and the wind, and thunder, and lightning. Sometimes the Bible talks about these storehouses up in the rakia that God has. And from those storehouses, he kind of releases all of these natural elements. And that creates these forces of wind and rain and thunder and lightning and storm and so on, and therefore regulates the temperature of the earth. All of that was believed to come through the gates of the rakia, the gates of heaven, and come down upon the earth. 
Now, when you understand that function of the rakia, it becomes a little clearer what God is doing on day two. What God's putting in place here is a system of weather. What God creates on day two is weather. Yes, he created the sky, but again, you need to ask the question, why? Why did God create sky? Not just for the sake of it, but to put in place an operational weather system so that life could be sustained on earth, human life and animal life. So on day two, God is putting in the basis of, of weather that regulates all these natural elements that are going to be required for human beings to live on the earth and for animals to live and for plants to grow and so on and so forth. All of that is going to require a weather system. And that's exactly what God provides on day two. So on day one, God creates time. On day two, God creates weather. What about day three? Let's press on. On day three, we have in verse nine, and God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. So this, I think, is a little bit more straightforward. Uh, you have the separating of the land and the sea. And for ancient peoples, as soon as they hear about the land and the sea being created or being separated, they would have very closely associated this with food. Ancient people were much more tied to the land, tied to the sea for their sources of food than we are. Right? We, we grab the fish and the, and the sausages off the grocery uh, supermarket shelves most of the time. For the ancient people, they were directly tied to the sea. For, the, for fishing, they were directly tied to the land to kill and hunt animals for food. They were very tied to the source of their food. So for ancient people, when they read this story, see this picture of dry land emerging from the sea, one of the associations they would have is, great, now there's a source of food. Now there's at least the beginnings, the basis for us to have a viable food source. And this is reinforced by the very next thing that God does, which is to bring forth the vegetation. And he allows the land to put in motion this system of vegetation. The ancient peoples marveled at the way that you could have plants and trees that would grow and then they would drop seeds, these tiny little seeds, and they would fall to the ground and from these tiny seeds would come entire plants and trees, each producing after their kind. And that's the marvel of nature that's reflected in this passage. And so what God is doing here is putting in place the basis of a system of agriculture to be able to cultivate and till and work the land in order to provide for food. So what God is doing on day three is providing the basis, the foundations of a system of food production to support human life and to support animal life. You can see where the story's going, can't you? You can see that what God is doing is putting in place these things that are going to be necessary for human life, particularly, and animal life, to flourish. And so the story is building and building and building. And we're going to see over the next two weeks, it continues building towards that point when God creates human beings in his image. But for now, in these early stages, God is putting in place the basic elemental foundations that are going to be necessary to support life. He's created time. He's created weather. Now he creates the system of food on day three. So time 
and weather and food. Basic building blocks of life, some of them at least, some foundational pillars of life. And these three things continue to be important right throughout the biblical story. In fact, let me just show you a passage a few chapters along where each of these things, they, they come together again. They're mentioned together again. Just turn over to Genesis 8 for a moment. And Genesis 8 is the story of what happens straight after the flood. So God has brought this judgment upon the earth. He's brought this flood upon the earth. And then after the flood, God basically starts again. He starts creation again. And you read Genesis 8, and it kind of sounds like God's just doing Genesis 1 all over again. He's creating life again um, and replenishing and repopulating the earth. And in the context of that, here's the promise that God makes to Noah in Genesis 8, verse 22. As long as the earth endures... Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. So there's those three elements again, time, weather, and food, except this time in reverse order, food, weather, time, mentioned again as the fundamental building blocks of life. And God is saying, these things will endure. I'm not going to wipe out human life completely. I'm not going to wipe out all possibility for life, but these things will endure. They'll continue to support life. They'll continue to sustain life on the earth as long as the earth endures. This is a fundamental promise God is making to continue sustaining the conditions that are necessary for life to flourish on earth. So that's what God is doing in Genesis 1, is creating these foundations of life in anticipation of human beings being created. So the story, as you step back from it, is the story of God taking this tohu wabohu, this chaos, this darkness, this desolation, and the Spirit of God hovering over that darkness, that chaos, and then from that, bringing forth life. Bringing forth life out of lifelessness. Bringing forth light out of darkness. Bringing forth new possibilities. Bringing forth order out of disorder bringing forth purpose and roles and functions out of what was disordered and jumbled together. The story of God's Spirit bringing life out of the chaos, out of the tohu wabohu. That's the story of these first three days, this early, early story of creation. And I think we can see in these early verses a little pattern of the way that God continues to work through history, the way that God continues to work in our lives today. Because as you follow through the rest of the biblical story, isn't the whole thing about the Spirit of God bringing life where there is no life, bringing something where there's nothing, bringing hope where there's hopelessness, bringing light out of the darkness. God, throughout the Bible, is constantly hovering over the chaos over the mess, over the darkness, over the brokenness, and he's bringing something out of it. God just has a way of bringing life out of lifelessness. The greatest example of that surely has got to be the resurrection of Jesus. Well, you go all the way to that part of the biblical story in the New Testament and just think of that for a moment. Jesus has died. His body's been placed in the ground and that tomb as he's there in that cave and that tomb, his body, his lifeless body, Empty of life, formless and void, tohu wabohu, right? The tomb of Jesus, the grave of Jesus is the ultimate place of tohu wabohu. In a different sense, I know, to the creation story, but once again, chaos, once again, desolation. It's like everything has been undone. And yet, even in the grave, even in the depths of the earth there, the Spirit of God is hovering, 
hovering over the grave, just waiting, just waiting out those three days. And then on the third day, God once again says, let there be light. And Jesus comes forth, the resurrected one. Up from the grave, he arose, defeating death, defeating Satan, and bringing about a whole new creation, like the whole thing being born again, like creation being resurrected, just like Jesus' body has been resurrected. It's like creation 2.0. The whole thing is being rebooted now. It's off to a new start, a new beginning. The tohu wabohu is defeated. Jesus is risen, and now this new creation is rolling forth. And ever since then, God has continued to be at work, bringing life out of the tohu wabohu in our lives, in our world. Plenty of chaos around us, right? We don't need to look far. But in that chaos and in the darkness and in the uncertainty and in the fear and in the anxieties that we experience in life, the Spirit of God is there. He's hovering and He's always working to bring life, to bring hope to bring something new where you thought something new could never come of this. God's at work. And if you let him and if you trust him, he'll bring something new out of it. I caught up on Friday with an old school friend of mine who's uh, struggling away. He's got bipolar. He's had mental health issues for many, many years. And a few months ago, he decided just randomly to come off his medication. So he did, and then that led him to do some pretty dumb things. He got into a police chase he got road spiked by the police, arrested, went to court, and then got court ordered into a facility that he's in now, mental health recovery rehabilitation facility. And he's going to be there at least three months. And a lot of what he's hoped for in life is just shattered around him. And a lot of his friends have abandoned him. And I've tried to just journey with him, not as well as I would have liked to, but try to just be a presence in his life. And I went and visited him and had lunch with him in there on Friday. And we just sat on this, on this bench outside and talked. And he talked about his struggles and some of the dreams that he's had and, and still has and tries to cling on to and some of the things that he's not sure are going to ever be possible in his life anymore and some of the people that he used to think were friends that have taken off because he's just too hard to deal with now. And I listened and, and we talked and toward the end of the conversation, I summoned up the courage and I said to him, could I pray for you? And he's not a Christian. Um, but I just said, would you mind if, if I prayed for you? And he was fine with that. And so I just prayed, just there on this park bench sitting outside some shops. I just prayed that God would be with him, that God would help him, that God would somehow reveal himself to him and, and open up some new possibilities and just give him new life, give him a hope and a future. Those words from Jeremiah, a hope and a future were on my mind. And I finished praying, and he just carried on talking like nothing had happened. And the conversation just kept on going. This has been quite a big thing for me to, to, to have the guts to do. And then he just carried on talking. But that's fine. And I'd like to think that in that moment, the Spirit of God was hovering. I mean, I didn't see him and I didn't hear any audible words from God. But I like to think that in that moment, the Spirit of God was hovering. This guy's life is tohu wabohu. It's chaos. It's, it's desolate, you know. He's been abandoned. There's not a lot of life there in many ways. But I think in that, in that time, nothing to do with me, but just the way God's working, I, I think in that moment, somehow the Spirit of God was hovering, and just in some small way, the Holy Spirit brought a little bit of life out of some lifelessness, shone a little bit of light into the darkness of his life. And that's what God does time and time and time again. He does it in big ways, like the resurrection of Jesus. 
And he does it in really, really small ways. Through everyday conversations and prayers and encounters and uh, interactions we have with one another. Where the Spirit of God's hovering. I mean, you think about your life now. Just think about the things that are going on. Think about the, the, the stresses and the strains and the struggles. Think about the pain. Think about the burdens that you're carrying right now. Think about the uncertainties and the fears and the anxieties that you've got for your future or the future of your family. Are you willing to believe that in all of that, the Spirit of God is hovering? Are you willing to believe that over all of that, tohu wabohu, that the Spirit of God's hovering over the waters? Same Spirit, same God who was there in the beginning, He's hovering over the waters of your life. Are you willing to go a step further and believe that God is going to bring something out of that? God's going to bring something out of that darkness. If you trust Him, if you lean into Him, you can walk away, you can harden your heart, you can ignore it and you'll miss it. But if you turn towards God, if you'd face him, if you'd embrace his love and his kindness, if you'd trust him, if you'd step into this, God will bring some life. He'll bring something. He may not fix all the problems. He may not completely turn the situation around, but in the midst of that darkness and that fear and that desolation, he is going to bring life. He's going to bring hope. He's going to bring something new out of something old. He's going to bring peace where there's only been anxiety. He's going to bring new possibilities where you couldn't see any possible way forward. He's going to bring something where there's just been nothing, if you trust him. And who knows, you might even be the one to be part of bringing a little life into someone else's life. If you know someone who's struggling, if you know someone who's got some tohu wabohu going on in their life at the moment, you could be the answer to that prayer, couldn't you? You could be the way the Holy Spirit works to speak a word to send some encouragement, to show up, to be present, to send the text, to do whatever it takes, to let them know that, hey, they're loved, God loves them, you love them, and there will be life that comes out of their darkness because you're involved and you're the one God uses in that moment to speak into that situation just as God spoke over creation in the beginning. God's at work doing this all the time, taking the tohu wabohu and bringing life, bringing hope, bringing something new. Same God, right? Same God who was there in the beginning. Same God who created time, if you can get your head around that. The same God who created the weather. Same God who created the basis of all food production. That God still working in our lives, in our world today. Let's look for it. Let's have eyes to see it. Let's become more aware of it. Let's press into it, participate with God in this. And let's celebrate it when we see it. Let's thank God for it. Let's be grateful for the ways in which he works in our lives to bring life out of chaos. Because as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for that. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the ultimate gift of life that you have given to us. Jesus, the one who has brought life, eternal life to us out of the darkness of sin, out of the darkness of our desolation and despair. Jesus, you've spoken a word. We thank you. We thank you, God. Father, I just want to pray right now for anyone here who doesn't know the hope that you bring, Lord God. For anyone who doesn't know you, Jesus and has not yet received your life into their life. I pray, Holy Spirit, right now that you would hover over their life 
And just bring a revelation of your goodness, God. Just bring a revelation of who you are. Just remind them you're the God who is there. You are there, God. You're there in the darkness. You're there in the emptiness or the fullness or whatever they're experiencing. But you are there with them right now and you're drawing them to yourself. Would you draw them, Lord God, out of the darkness and into your light? And would you plant the seeds of faith in their life right now to respond, to reach out? And take hold of the life that you give them. God, for each of us, help us to know that you are the God who hovers over our lives, hovers over our chaos, and brings good things, brings life out of whatever we're going through. Thank you, God, that you are so good to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.